Today, we are going to continue to look at another great example of what it looks like to be a woman of war, a woman of intercession. And the particular story that we're going to be looking at today actually features not one woman, but two women. Women who are completely fearless, women who walk by faith and not by sight. Women who are just literally locked and loaded, ready to go to war, ready to do what needs to be done for the Lord. These women are anointed by God. Uh, Their story is incredible. I'm excited to dig into this. And the women I'm talking about are Deborah and J.L. These are women who you're going to see fight the battles of the Lord. This is their focus. This is their care. This is their concern. These are women. They're, they're not intimidated. That's what's awesome about looking at these women as they go to work for the Lord. They're not intimidated by the fear of the world, by the fear of man. They're not allured by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, so that they're distracted. These women are totally 100%, every bit of their heart. They're not 90% in. They're not 99% in, they're 100% sold out for him and his kingdom. And you know, gals, I really think that uh, I'm excited to dig into this one as well, uh, into this story as, as, you know, in, in, in addition to all the other stuff we've covered, because it's stories like this that have been preserved for the ages, for the centuries, it's supposed to empower you. It is the template. You're supposed to look at this and not read it as a story. You're supposed to read it as this is who I'm supposed to be. And I I know, I'm going to venture to guess, most of you women want to do great things for the kingdom. You want the Lord to move in you in a mighty way. You want to be used. Our value is based on how the Lord uses us, amen? We need to become the people that we've only read about. That's what we need to do. You need to look at this and know that this is obtainable. Because these women were not great based upon their own flesh, based upon their own intellect. This was radical moves of God, one after another after another. Absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, as we read this, you know, be challenged. As we read this, be equipped, be strengthened, be encouraged, be all of these things. Because you need to make your mark in history. And you're going to be given an opportunity as we look at this insanity that is coming over this country and over the world right now. You will be given a chance to make your mark. And so you need to be those women. So with that said, let's break into our story today. In Judges 4 verse 1 we read, When Ahud was dead, and I want to stop here because Ahud, who is he? He is a judge. A very righteous judge, a very powerful judge. The Lord did awesome things through this shepherd who shepherded Israel. Israel experienced 80 years of peace, of total shalom because of what God did through this shepherd. And so an amazing guy, but now we got the problem. This guy is dead. At which point we read, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Pay close attention because you're being given one of the most vital principles that scripture has to offer us. And we see it play over and over and over again. It all has to do with shepherds. 
The importance of shepherds. You know, what is the job? What was the hood's job? What is the job of the judges? What is the job of shepherds and pastors and teachers? What are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be bringing conviction to the people. They're supposed to remind them of the judgment of God. You don't want to go out and sin. You don't want to go do this. You don't want to fulfill the lust of your flesh because you will end up under the vengeance of the living God. Good shepherds remind the sheep of the promises. They remind the sheep that God is faithful to his word. They remind the sheep of the mercy of God, the love of God, his compassion. Good shepherds teach the sheep the difference between the right hand and the left. They make known the difference between good and evil, between the clean and unclean, between holy and unholy. Good shepherds do all of this, but when the shepherds stop shepherding, watch out. When the shepherd's away, the sheep will play. It's just a reality. You can see it over and over and over again. You know, there's a reason as you can go to the Torah in the first chapter in Deuteronomy. It makes sure the Lord wants to make sure that they set up judges in all their cities. Set up judges, set up elders. Why? To push back on sin, to govern and pen the sheep so that they are protected, to bring the conviction, to bring an atmosphere, cultivate an atmosphere where, you know what? We want to be excited about worshiping the Lord. We want to be excited. We want to elevate the praises of our God. He is worthy. We want to put into context who he is. This is what good shepherds do. Even the apostle Paul in talking to Titus, the pastoral epistles as a whole. Paul, they they went out and set up churches. The, The main thing that they did and that he was concerned about in all the cities you go, make sure you set up elders, judges, shepherds. Set them up. Because without them is calamity. Total collapse. And so here we see a situation where this great judge of the living God, who God did great things through, who kept the sheep from going into sin, he's now gone. And because of that, Israel is going into sin. And what happens next? Then we see this. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. I find that statement interesting. The choice of words that the writer used. These are words that you don't want to hear. These are words, I will, I will actually go as far to say, you don't want to believe. You don't want to believe that the Lord would sell you. And that's exactly what it says in the Hebrew. Now you think about this because the, the Bible is filled with an, in, in, even in the, in the Torah, in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses goes to the children of Israel and he points up in, in the sense that, is not he your father who bought you? He tells Israel, you have been bought. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, chapter 7, he says, we've been bought at a price. You Gentiles being grafted into the faith of Israel, you were bought at a price. Therefore, don't become slaves to men. Keep your temple holy. And I I think of, uh, we could talk about even Genesis 17, where Abraham would be this father of many nations and, and God made a covenant with him and anyone who's in Abraham's house is going to be redeemed. And it's interesting, he talks about those who are born in his house and those who are bought with his money will enter into that covenant. 
Leviticus 22 talks about, hey, if, with the priesthood, no outsider could eat of the holy things. Everyone's forbidden to eat of the holy things except those who are in the priest's household with an exception. Those who are bought at a price. They are bought at a price. We know we have been bought. To read this, I mean, that's staggering. This is dramatic. Feel the weight of this because as quickly as the Lord has bought you, he will sell you if you reject him. If you turn away from his word, if you rebel against him, if you commit adultery against him, you choose the world instead of Yeshua who gave his life for you. Do not think for a moment the devil wants you to believe that you going out committing sin, walking away from the Lord, nothing bad's going to happen. It's going to be okay. There's other Christians doing it. It's totally fine. Don't, don't worry about it. This is exactly what the devil wants you to believe. Why? Because he wants authority over you. He wants to be able to attack you. He wants to be able to control you. Amazing. You know, I think of John Ramirez, the, the ex-Satanist. As he's given his testimony, he's, he's talking about how he would do witchcraft and voodoo and perform this stuff on people and curse people. But then he came up against a woman that he wasn't allowed to touch. He wanted to curse her. He was even willing to do it for free. Someone was willing to pay for it. But he couldn't touch her and he couldn't understand it, that he had all this power. And he had no ability to do that because she was in relationship with Yeshua. And that relationship totally protected her. It was off limits. You're off limits until you forsake him, until he sells you. And so the very same God who has bought Israel is now selling them. Let that sink in, because that, that is a terrifying thought. I'm going to build on this. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 2. Follow me on this. Joash, who's the king of Judah, did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Notice, it doesn't say that Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of his life. Oh, no, 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 no. Said he did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. What is Jehoiada? He's a shepherd. Think of him as a judge. He would actually judge. This is what Torah would command. He was a shepherd. He brought the goodness of God. He reminded the people both of the promises, the love, the mercy, and the judgment. They frowned upon sin. The shepherds would speak harsh against sin. That it was vile, it was shameful, it was a betrayal to the one true God. You know, a good shepherd like Jehoiada would remind the people of the good deeds that God has already done. Bring these to remembrance over and over, the awesomeness of our God. But then we read this in verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Yehuda came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. Same type of situation as our storyline. We had a hood. He died. Now we have Jehoiada, who had such great influence and such an impact on the kingdom. He had an impact on the king on down. The king feared God because of this shepherd. You can see how instrumental this shepherd is. But now he's gone. And now guess what? The sheep are coming to the king. The sheep are bleeding. What are they bleeding out? What are they bleeding? They're bleeding. Oh, king, 
We want to be released from the obligation to follow the Lord God. We want to be released from keeping all these commandments that prevent us from tasting the sweet nectar of vanity and idolatry and immorality and all the things that we see the nations around us participating in. We want to be a part of that, but God's word has prevented us from going there. We want that. And so they go to the king and they ask for that. And then we see this in verse 18. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. Oh, and guess what happened? And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. God sold them. He sold them out to their enemies, exactly like what we see happening here in our story. Feel the weight of this. When God sells you out, hell is coming. Despair, depression, that's the one thing that I have discovered in ministry that has hit me so hard. People that struggle with depression are separated from their God who gives joy. There's a separation. Something's wrong. Something's off balance because I can go to my Bible and I can read about the apostle Paul sitting in a prison rejoicing, not knowing if he's going to die the next day. That's impossible. Something's wrong with the relationship. And so here we see the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And then it says this, the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Heroshet Hagoim, simply means field of the Gentiles or cultivated field of the Gentiles. And then we read verse three, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, oh, thank you. Good news. Man, if you only knew the power of this statement, because this, just like the last thing I said, this is a governing principle. We see this theme throughout scripture of how when a shepherd goes and all of a sudden Israel falls into sin, we see this over and over again. But you know what else we see? Hope. We see them turn and come to their senses and cry out to the Lord. Now, I don't need to know the rest of the story. I know the Bible well enough. I, had, I would know right now at that moment, good is coming. Good is coming on the horizon. The future looks beautiful. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what Paul reminds us of as he's quoting the, uh, uh, the prophet Joel. There is hope. I want to take you to Psalm 107. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, such as in our story where Israel is, bound in affliction and irons, they can't get out. They're in bondage. They're in total bondage. Why? Because they rebelled against the words of God. And despise the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought them, or brought their heart with labor, brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help. I want you to understand something so that, and this is what good shepherds do. They come in and give true perspective that, hey, if you want to abandon the commandments of God, and you want to be comfortable with that, know that you are going to the devil's camp, and no one's going to be able to help you. You will cry out, there's not going to be any help. The devil, read Isaiah 14. The devil will never let you out of prison. He's not going to say, you know what? You spent enough time there. I've really mistreated you badly. It's not coming. It is not coming. You can look to man to come and help you. There will be no help. But then we read this. Here's the hope 
Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. Over and over again, when you turn with a humble heart, with brokenness, with a repentant spirit, and your mouth confesses Yeshua, and you cry out to him, confessing your sin, there is hope. Everything in scripture tells you, you will be restored. Now, whether you believe that or not, that's going to be on you. Those who believe this will taste and see that the Lord is good. I promise. Verse 16. For he has broken the gates of bronze. This is the Lord. Cut the bars of iron in two. Did what no one else could do. Yeshua comes and sets the captives free. Nobody else could do it. They were bound. And verse 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Because it's open season on the foolish who abandoned Yeshua. It will be open season. We'll be sold into the hands of our enemies. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Oh, I love this. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of all their distresses. Over and over again, this is the truth. Let it sink down. We need to call out to Yeshua, the master, a savior, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has bought us at a price. We need to circle back and call on him. And that's where Israel is beginning. There's a turn here in the storyline. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for Yavin or Jabin had 900 chariots of iron. Listen to this. For 20 years, he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. You know, Honestly, the most accurate way to describe what Israel was going through, listen to me carefully, was an ancient form of communism, literally, where total, a tyrannical regime had come in that was so oppressive, totally illogical, doesn't recognize humanity as a whole, but the sole goal is total oppression, to instill depression. It's a completely deprived mentality. This is how the devil works. It's the mind of the devil. They've been sold into their enemy's hands, and it's beyond what they can tolerate. It's beyond what they can handle. And that's where they're at, and they did this for 20 years. But then we read this in verse 4, and this is where we get into our women. Now, Devorah, or Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. See, the moment, understand, the moment... Children of Israel decided to turn back and start to call on the one true God of Israel. The Lord took Deborah and brought her up. This is an amazing thing. Now we're told three specific things here in regard to Deborah. Number one, she is a prophetess. And for me, to be honest with you, this tells me almost all I need to know about this woman. Because now I know the fact that she's a prophetess, I know this woman is anointed of the living God. She speaks with God, and he speaks with her. This, is, this woman walks in power. This woman will have Maim Chaim coming out of her. Living water will come forth for her to give drink to the children of Israel. This is a woman of power. This is a woman who's connected with the Lord. And like I said before in the introduction, this is not a woman that cares for the things of the world. She has perspective. The word of God resides within her. 
She has the fear of the Lord. She is a woman of prayer, dedicating, taking time to spend with the Lord. On all accounts, women, this is where you want to be. So that's the first thing we learn. She is a prophetess. The second thing we learn is this. She is married. It's interesting that the writer would mention this. Why even throw that? This woman is married, and she's married to Lapidot, which simply in Hebrew refers to literally torches or burning torches or burning lamps, lightning flashes. I find that interesting because of how many times, you know, Israel is identified as a woman. It's at times identified as God's son. At times it's identified as a woman, such as we see in Revelation 12. And here you have this woman married to the burning torches, the lightning flashes. And that, that's significant to me because when you go and look at when God, in a sense, married in covenant his people at Mount Sinai, what is the most predominant feature that we get out of that story? It's all the lightning flashes, the thunderings, the lightnings, the fire. The rabbis talk about tongues of fire came down during that time. It's just, it's just interesting that uh, the, the meaning of his name. Now, kind of circling back to the fact that this is even mentioned here, you know, the writer is very careful to include this for a reason. The fact that she was married. To do that is to tell you that this woman very much so respects authority. Clearly, being a prophetess, she respects the authority of God. She respects the authority of God's design in marriage. Meaning she would have to submit to her husband. Now the reason I bring this up is because Deborah, by some has been turned into a radical fist-pumping feminist that people try to twist and utilize who, who Deborah is, that she's basically tired of this man-made system or this man-centered system of authority. She's going to break out of that, and she's going to rise up to be a judge at that time. I want to be very, very clear Deborah is nothing like what some people would try to paint her as. Some radical feminist trying to, trying to break out, not wanting to be under the authority of a man that would include her husband. She's not a Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who this pioneer of the women's liberation movement actually refused to enter into a marriage that she had, submitting to her husband or having any language of that whatsoever. She wouldn't do it. In fact, she believed that the Torah was one of the greatest books of the degradation of women in existence. This is not Deborah. I promise you that. This is a woman of beautiful humility. This is a woman of honor. This is a woman who does recognize the sanctity and God's construct of marriage. But yes, she has risen up as a judge, which has caused all sorts of conversation from scholars all the way down to the lay people going, what happened here? Because this quite literally, she is the exception, not the rule. There are no other women judges ever mentioned in scripture. They don't exist. She's the exception, not the rule. I mean, it's really bizarre. And so this is one of the most discussed passages in the, I would say one of the most, at least from my experience, in the Old Testament is, is in regard to what is the, how is this possible? 
How is this possible that a woman would rise in a position where you can clearly go from literally the Old Testament, you can go from the Torah all the way into the New Testament, and what you will find is the criteria to be an elder, to be a judge, to be a shepherd, the criteria is gender, it's male. And it specifically says, choose for yourself wise and understanding men. When Paul's given his criteria in, in, in the pastoral epistles, he has to be, for him to qualify, he has to be the husband of one wife. And so, what do we do with I mean, you, you look at this. It's really simple. There's no need for getting crazy. You know, there, you just have to accept that in Scripture, guess what? God sometimes has exceptions to the rule. Okay, listen to me. We know, what is it? Uh, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, I can say with certainty and comfortability, and this is part of the gospel. Every one of you are going to die. The person next to you, the person behind you, the person in front of you. It's appointed for man to die once. It's very simple. Yet, wait a second. What about Enoch? What about Elijah? I mean, that's bizarre. These are bizarre. And do they not cultivate a lot of discussion? Absolutely. But they're the exception. That's not the rule. And I'm going to tell you, Deborah is the exception. And let me take it a step further. Why would God make the exception for her? And I'm going to tell you this. Because the eyes of the Lord were combing throughout the earth, going to and fro to show himself strong among someone whose heart was loyal to him. And he didn't find a he, he found a her. Do you, do you understand the gravity of the kind of woman that Deborah really is? Of this broken, humble spirit woman filled with the love for her God who created her? God lifted her up, rose her up. It is an awesome thing. I mean, we're reading about an awesome woman of God. And so, I want to jump ahead here for a moment before we continue on. And I'm going to put the cart before the horse, and I'm going to kind of give you the punchline of today's entire message. When you jump into chapter 5, there's total victory. God gives Deborah victory. God gives Barak victory. All victory is given. Israel is triumphant. And in chapter 5, Deborah opens up with a hymn of thanksgiving. The entire chapter is dedicated. Her and Barak are declaring the praises of God. It's an amazing hymn. But in that process, we learn a couple things that we need for the backdrop. And so that's why we're going to jump there. We read this. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael and Jael, right? And what, okay, when were the days of Shamgar? Remember Ahud? Ahud who died, and after Ahud died, Israel went into darkness. Yeah, that's during those days. This is after Ahud's death, just so you have context. But this is what we read, and this will get into this ancient form of communism that they experienced. The highways were deserted, and the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in other work, in, 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 in Israel. And so what we see here is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all this that Israel was enjoying, that they had enjoyed under the last leadership, under that great, it's all gone. There's, there's no more hearing that beautiful hustle and bustle, hustle and bustle of uh, economic prosperity where the highways are full and all of this activity and business is happening 
everything's changed. Village life ceased. The way of their life that they were accustomed to completely stopped. Now, how many times have we heard people are stunned by what is happening in this country right now? We are not living in the same America we were two years ago. We're not. And it's getting worse. And so you, you quite literally, you see what Israel was dealing with. I mean, it was an ancient form of communism. Total tyranny had taken over. But then listen to this. This is what I love. Until I, Deborah, arose a mother in Israel. Gals, one woman, made all the difference to an entire nation. Try to swallow that. Her passion and desire and commitment for the living God, the impact that that would have on an entire nation, you can't even calculate it. This is incredible. This is so incredible to me to see this. So you just, you got to step back and appreciate the magnitude, the greatness of this woman and the greatness that would fall upon her because of her devotion to the Lord, her trust in the Lord. Now, with that said, let's go back. Judges 4.4, 4. now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, a very strategic location, at least somewhat convenient for all of Israel to access her. Uh, in the mountains of Ephraim, oh, and I love this, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now understand, this is the whole concept, this is the whole part where they started to turn and call upon the name of the Lord. Now Israel is going to Deborah. Why? Because she has the anointing of the living God. They see the wisdom of God come forth from her. They see the power of God resting upon her. It is an awesome thing. And you know, gals, I, I think about this, you know, there are details here that I really expect we should just know. For example, do you think Deborah sat in this chair that was so instrumental for pushing back evil as a good shepherd would, as a good judge would, pushing back evil and exalting righteousness? Do you think it's easy to sit in that chair? Do you not think that this woman had to fight every day of her life, take every thought captive, and to sift through the lies as the enemy tells her, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Playing to the cultural stigmatism. And nobody, no woman's going to sit in this chair. Do you not think that the enemy attempted every single day to come and discourage her, to take her away, so that she wouldn't bring conviction, so that she wouldn't render righteousness, so that she wouldn't encourage others to follow the one true God of Israel? You better believe it, that she had to war through that. And here's where I'm going with this. This woman was immovable. She did not cave it to fear. She didn't allow lies to distort reality. She took captive every thought. She held her ground. Her faith in God was so strong, she pushed it back. You know, when the enemy's coming against you, and I was just talking to someone this morning. I think it was Sarah talking to her, and we were talking about the fact that, and she, her eyes are even opening, that when the enemy is attacking you, there's something ahead of you that you're supposed to accomplish. 
And she's starting to see that. Because that's a reality. You got to understand, God is looking for those whose hearts are loyal to him. He wants to show himself strong, not weak. Let me tell you something. If God's going to show himself strong in you, believe me, people are going to notice. That's not something that goes unnoticed, amen? When we move on to verse 6. Then she sent and called for Barak, which interestingly enough, here this woman, Deborah, is surrounded by what? Barak means lightning. She's surrounded by torches, burning torches and lightning. I mean, this, is the, this just reminds me of the whole Mount Sinai experience. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Avinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. So Deborah is giving military orders to Barak. But it's not from Deborah's mind. The God of Israel spoke to her. She is communicating God's words, God's heart. She continues, or the Lord continues, Against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Yavin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Oh, she is a prophetess. She's prophesying victory for Israel. But it's not her words, it's God's. God has told him, you will be victorious. But even getting more specific, the Lord tells Barak, Barak, Sisera will be dealt into your hand. I will give him into your hand. How does Barak respond? Verse eight. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. What? What kind of response is that? Why would Barak say this? I'm going to tell you. There's fear in Barak. There's fear in his camp. You know, he's in, you know, in his defense, he's looking at the battle here through the eyes of flesh. And this battle looks more like a death wish than a prophetic picnic. You got to understand, Sisera is coming. He's coming in heavy militarily. He's got 900 chariots of iron. Oh, how many do Israel have? None. This is not a fair fight. And Barak is struggling here. And so basically, as we look at Barak's response, we see two things. First thing we see is what? How much he respects Deborah. How much he knows that the anointing of the living God rests upon her. Because he's not willing, despite God telling him, I'm going to give you victory. Those words weren't enough. No, you got to come with me, Deborah. I'm not going. And so we see he, he respects Deborah. And the other thing is, is we see that he has serious fear. And nay, I say, truly doubting the word of the Lord. Look at how Deborah responds to him. She says this, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. He just got done. The Lord prophesied through Deborah, I will sell, send, or sell Sisera into your hand. Now, because 
He catered to fear. He did not believe the word of the Lord and go on the mission and the strength of the word of the Lord. She comes back and says, well, you're not going to get the honor that you were going to get. That honor is going to be given to another. And not another man, another woman. Absolutely fascinating. You look at this, you know, there, there are plenty of times we can go to scripture and we see stuff like this happening. Now, it's interesting. Brock will still go on the mission and God will give victory but it won't be what it should have been. I think of um, John the Baptist, mom and dad, help me out. Zacharias and Elizabeth, right? Zacharias goes into the temple. He's burning incense. And there he goes to the altar of incense. And who's standing there? Gabriel, the angel. And Gabriel lays this on him. Now keep in mind, he's an old man. His wife is really old. And Gabriel says, yeah, you're going to have a son. She was barren. And she's way past the age of childbearing. And Zacharias' response is like, well, you know, I'm old, right? And my wife is really old. And he's talking to an angel. It's an amazing experience. And the angel said, well, this will come to pass. It's going to come to pass. But because you did not believe my words, you will be mute until the day this is fulfilled. It's interesting. I could I give you other examples like 2 Kings chapter, I think, 13, where you have Joash, the king of Israel, meets with a prophet of God. And the prophet says, take those arrows in your hand, strike the ground. So Joash strikes the ground three times and the prophet gets angry. Why did you not strike the ground five or six times? Then you would have destroyed Syria completely. He only struck it three times, alluding to the fact, there was a lack of faith here. And so he didn't get what he should have got. And so this is what's going on here. I mean, like I said, we, we got examples of this, but this is, This is what's going on. Barak is struggling in his faith. Verse 10, And Barak called Zavulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Hever the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. We need to stop here. Who is this Hever the Kenite? This is the husband of Jael, which you're going to meet very soon. Hever the Kenite is the husband of Jael. Now this, this is interesting because he is a Kenite, uh, look at this, of the children of the father-in-law of Moses. There's a connection with this Jael when we get there that she's part of the family of the Moses' in-laws. It's kind of amazing. And so it goes on, it says, and he had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree and Zaanaim, which is beside Kadesh, verse 12. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor to Sisera, gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Heroshet Hagoim to the river Kishon, verse 14. Then Deborah said to Barak, Kum, which is to say, stand up, arise, For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tavor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera. All glory goes to the Lord always. Amen. He's the one that routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued 
the chariots and the army as far as Haroshet, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left because the battle belonged to the Lord. Verse 17, however, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now listen to this. The wife of Hever the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Hever the Kenite. In other words, Sisera is fleeing for his life, and he sees safe ground. He sees friend, not foe. He sees an ally, not an enemy. He's going into this camp. He knows, oh, we got good relations. I'm going to be safe here. Now, this is where we get into JL, verse 18. And Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not fear. Little history lesson from the last couple of weeks when we saw the wise woman of Abel go out to Joab to intercede on behalf of an entire city was the first thing she did. She humbled herself in his sight and called him my Lord and indicating I am for you. I'm not against you. We're on the same side. We saw the very same thing in Abigail going before David, calling him my Lord, declaring I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Now we see this woman, Yael, coming out to Sisera, telling him what these other women have said. She's humbling herself before him. My Lord, turn aside, and then ends it with, do not fear. Yeah, deception is a nasty thing in war because she is plotting to kill him. She is plotting to take him out. And she's doing so because this is the battle of the Lord. This is, you look at how this is going. It is, it is really something. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Hospitality. She's going to show a tremendous amount of hospitality. She is going to warm him and comfort him. She knows this guy is dog tired. War will do that. You don't sleep sometime for days. We have no, no idea how long this would have gone. This guy is exhausted. So she gives him a nice warm blankie. And we go on to verse 19. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He asked for water. She goes above and beyond that and gives him milk. Now, it's interesting how the rabbis comment on this, and they see strategy here. Rashi says this. He says, she gave him milk because it slackens the body and causes darkness. Do you understand? She's very intentional. Every aspect of what she's doing. You need a little binky? I'll give you your binky and I'm going to give you some milk and I'm going to comfort you as a mother would comfort a child. And I'm going to set you up. In verse 20, and he said to her, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say no. Now after this, he feels good. He's got his blankie. He's got his milk, nice warm glass of milk before you go to bed, right? Take you out. And he's exhausted. Now he's ready to go down. And she knows it. And then we read this. Then Yael Hever's wife took a tent peg 
and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went down into the ground for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. And actually you read the Targums, it shattered his skull. Now this was not her first rodeo of wielding a hammer and a tent peg because there's no way that she had done this. Now, of course, there is a way, knowing she's fighting the battle of the Lord, supernatural things happen. To do what she did, you have to admit, this is completely supernatural, to drive a ten peg all the way through a skull into the ground. You want to talk about God's vengeance and God's deliverance? Did all this through a woman. How many of you women, in the entire time where you see a commander of an enemy coming your way, one of the most powerful men in the region coming your way would begin to tremble. And fear would overtake you, even if you were told, you know what? You got to go on the Lord's mission. You got to take this guy out. A woman going up against a man is just doesn't usually end well. There is nothing in this story where this woman even blinks an eye. She is calculated in her approach She is so sure about fighting the Lord's battle, so confident, there is no fear. See, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you, and you have the power of God upon you, and you are fighting the Lord's battle, you don't know fear. You do not know fear. You just go. That is an incredible thing to me, to see this woman work. Verse 22 And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came out to meet him and said to him, come, look at her. She's so calm. She's just gained the victory for Israel. Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into, uh, and he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Barak literally saw the honor and glory that he was supposed to have, that God said he would deliver to him. He gave it to another woman. Oh, a woman, by the way, in which God was looking, combing throughout the land, his eyes combing through the earth, looking to show himself strong to someone whose heart is loyal to him. Not to Satan, not to false gods, not to worldly pleasures, not to covetousness, not to idolatry. Her heart was for the Lord. And he didn't find a him, he found a her. Again, women, how many stories do we got to go through before you radically let go and give everything that you have to the Lord and trust in him and know, I want to carry out great exploits for the Lord. I want the Lord to do miraculous things within me. You got to let go of the world. You got to cut the strings, the strings of fear, the strings of doubt, the strings of discouragement. All these things that the devil is pulling you with, it's garbage. You get rid of it. Jumping ahead, we read this in regard to Yael. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Hever the Kenite. Blessed is she among women and tents. This is what you want people to say of you, to be written down for all eternity. Most blessed among women. Like mother in Israel. This woman made history. We need women like Deborah. We need women like JL to make history in this generation right now that are not afraid to stand up for the truth, for the name of Jesus, 
for the name of Yeshua. They're going to hold the line. Judges 5.12, we read, Awake, awake, Deborah, awake and sing a song. Arise, Barak, and lead your captives away, O son of Avinoam. Then the survivors came down. The people against the nobles. I love this. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. Do you understand? So Deborah did not have to, as a woman, rely upon her own strength. Jael did not have to rely upon her own strength. They relied upon the strength of the Lord. That's where they drew their strength. Verse 19, check this out. The kings came and fought. Then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. Listen to this. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Do you understand what was just communicated? This was spiritual warfare. There was something going on in the spirit realm that nobody saw. All they saw is the physical. And I'm going to tell you right now, if, 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 if you cannot believe the reality that when God calls you on a mission, when God calls you to defend his name, the name of Yeshua, if you think for one moment all hell hasn't broken loose in the spirit realm, you're deceived and that there is a war and a battle. The battles in the spiritual realm manifest in the physical. Understand that. This is so much bigger than what men or women typically think. There's a spiritual reality going on. What happened in 2 Kings with Elisha and his servant? They're going out, right? And the, the king of Syria and all his chariots and all his men surround him. The servant is petrified. He's ready to faint. He's so scared. And then Elisha says this, he says, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Yet all the servant sees, what does the servant see? He sees, not, I see you and me and we're surrounded by thousands. What are you talking about? And then Elisha prays to Lord, open his eyes so that he can see the reality. And when he opened his eyes, he saw the Lord's army totally encamped around the Syrians. We don't see that. And I'm going to tell you, because you don't see that, you don't believe. And that's, that's where you lose battles, where you don't really understand what is going on, where you forget that the Lord is with you. If you go into any battle in any situation and the Lord is with you, you think you're going to have courage that you could not possibly muster? Absolutely. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you, nor forsake you. This is what Deborah knew. This is what J.L. knew. To be able to do this as a woman, they knew the Lord was with them. You want to accomplish what you need to accomplish in this generation, women and men. Boy, you need this. You need to know that the Lord is with you and have that confidence. In other words, when the government or anyone else comes and tells you, say, listen, unless you compromise, we're taking away your job. Or unless you compromise your faith, we're going to throw you in jail. You know what? And say, well, that's where Yeshua is. That's where I'm going. 
Because Yeshua is all the places where his commandments are, where his way is. And if you walk in his way, he will be with you. That's safety. That's peace of mind. That's the opposite of depression. That's joy. And that's who we need to be, amen?